So this is the last of our James series. Next week we have a one-off in Judges, and then we'll be back in John's Gospel uh, from the start of September. James 5, starting at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of God, and we give thanks to him. One of the lines in, um, one of the, lines in the song that we sang was, take it to the Lord in prayer. And that's basically, if you're putting a heading on, on this part of James, that would pretty much cover most of it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pray and ask for God's help as we come to this passage, which is, which is quite a difficult passage, okay, to get our heads around. And so we really do need God's help, as we always do. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask that you would give us eyes to see, and give us minds that would be able to understand what it is that you're saying in these um, final uh, sections in the book of James. And Lord, I pray that it would change us, that it would mold us, and that it would humble us, and that we would indeed be leaving here, seeking to come before you once again in prayer. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to work for a Scripture Union in Northern Ireland as a schools worker uh, down in Fermanagh, and uh, Part of the, the joy of working for Scripture Union was that you got to work with lots of different churches. And you got to go around lots of different churches and maybe um, share a bit about the work of Scripture Union, what was happening in schools, and encouraging them to pray for uh, Christian uh, pupils and staff in schools that they might be salt and light. And one of the real joys of doing that was that you often got invited to come along to prayer meetings, to prayer meetings. And prayer meetings were always a really interesting place to go. Because maybe you'd heard lots about a church Maybe it was good, maybe it wasn't so good, but then you'd go to the prayer meeting and you felt like you had a pretty accurate, accurate picture of what was really happening in the pulse of that church. It was a really good indicator as to what was actually going on. Hopefully you heard in the announcements, we've got a prayer meeting this week, 7.30 p.m., Wednesday in the minor hall. We really do hope that you can come. Because prayer is one of those practices that really shows us if we actually have humble hearts, because turning to God in prayer shows that we recognize God's place and we recognize our own place. And coming to God in prayer shows that we're not trusting in our own strength, but we are looking to God and we are looking to him for strength. We are seeking God to work. And so coming to God in praise and adoration shows that we recognize that God is the one who is ruling over all things completely. 
and that he is the creator who is to be worshipped. I think the message of this last part of James is this. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, I know that we've already mentioned Wednesday night, and for some of you, you can't come on a Wednesday night. For some of you, you can't make it on a, on a Friday morning to the prayer meeting. And I know that prayer takes place in lots of different ways as a, as, a, as, a, as a church together. We pray in lots of different ways throughout the week and individually. But I wonder, I wonder, is it really a priority? Don Carson, in one of his books, um, when he looks at lots of the prayers that Paul uh, prays throughout the New Testament, he says, much prayer does not happen because we do not plan to pray. And so as we come into kind of this new season, September, you know, it's almost like a new year, isn't it? I wonder, is it going to be a priority in your life? Are you going to prioritize prayer? Much prayer does not happen because we do not plan to pray. And James wants to leave us with a message that says prayer is really important. And prayer will also show you where your heart actually is. It's really hard to miss James's emphasis on prayer in this section. Just glance down through those verses, uh, 13 through to 18, and you will see that prayer pops up in every single verse. And so I think James has something to say to us about prayer this morning. So what is it he might be saying? Well, firstly, pray if you are suffering. We see that in verse 13, don't we? Is anyone among you suffering? Well, then let him pray. Now, if you've been here for the, the series on James, well, you'll know that speaking of those who are suffering, uh, this is not the first time that James brings it up. Now, James has been talking to those who have been suffering the whole way through, hasn't he? He's been speaking to those who are experiencing trials of various kinds. Do you remember that language from right back at the start? Trials of various kinds. And so as he mentions suffering here, I think what James is doing is he's referring to a, a whole range of suffering experiences. Anyone who is suffering, you might be here and maybe it's financial struggles. For others, it could be unfair treatment in the workplace. Maybe it's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it's sickness. All sorts of different shapes and sizes of trials, isn't there? And remember the context to which James is writing here. He's writing to believers who are scattered. The church is facing persecution. And so they know the reality of these trials ever so well. And what does James say to those who are suffering? James says, pray. Pray. This is to be the response of the individual believer, isn't it? Those who find themselves suffering, they themselves are to turn to God in prayer. Suffering is one of those things that, that drives us to prayer, isn't it? And what's interesting is that James doesn't actually tell us what to pray for. Do you spot that? He doesn't tell us what to pray for at this point. Now, we might naturally think that the prayer would be that our suffering would come to an end. That might be the natural default. And yet, if we know the book of James, we will know that trials themselves are not purposeless. They're not purposeless, but rather they have a good purpose from God. And so praying for the ending of suffering is not the only thing that we should be praying for. Now, I'm not saying that you should not be praying uh, to the, for the end of your suffering. In many cases, that is a good and, and right prayer. But think about Paul, for example. Paul prayed for the, the thorn uh, in his flesh to be removed, whatever it was, we're not told. But it wasn't. It wasn't. 
So I don't think James just wants us to pray that all the situations that cause our suffering would be removed. Think about what James has taught us so far about trials. Well, God has his purpose in trials, and surely one of the things that James would want us to be praying is this, that we might respond with steadfastness, and that the steadfastness would actually bring about its full effect, bring about its full effect, bringing about the the wholeness, the completeness. Remember we talked about that idea of soundness. You tap it, and you know it's, it's sound. Surely that's one of the things that we should be praying that will happen to us as a result of the the suffering that we are enduring. And wouldn't James say that we should cry out to God and ask for wisdom? Wisdom in how to respond when we are suffering. I wonder if you're here this morning and maybe, maybe you are feeling suffering ever so acutely. You are very much aware that This is a message for you this morning because you are suffering. Maybe it could be lots of different reasons, tensions at work, financial pressures at home, marriage stresses, disappointing exam results, friendships broken, grieving the loss of someone dear to you. Well, James says you must turn to God in prayer. Don't try to continue to to hold it all together yourself. No, you can't carry it. You must turn to God in prayer, bring it to your heavenly Father. Bring it to your heavenly Father, who James has already reminded us earlier in uh, the book of James, that he is the Father of lights. He's the one who, who, who brought all creation into being. He placed the stars in the sky. He's not some sort of God who's aloof and far off and, and isn't able to do anything about your suffering. No, he can meet you in it. He's the creator God. Is any one of you suffering? Well, let him pray. And if that's the first thing that we see, you're to pray if you're suffering. Well, the second thing is that you should see that you should pray if you're not. Do you spot that? Is anyone cheerful? Well, let him sing praise. You see, whenever we we come to God in praise, what we're doing is we're really in prayer, aren't we? Think of the, the, the book of the Psalms. Are they prayers or are they songs? Well, they're really both, aren't they? The the translation cheerful in the ESV or happy in the NIV, what it's really carrying the weight of is this idea of having a peace of mind. A a peace of mind. You are content with how things are at the moment. You wouldn't say that you're suffering. You're just content. And James writes to those who are in this position, and his message is you must sing praise. You must sing praise. See, often it's whenever things are going well, when things are just, you know, you're just content. Things seem pretty good in life. The exam results were what you hoped for, or maybe even better, maybe a surprise to the parents. Uh, maybe maybe your, your summer holiday was good and you, you enjoyed it. Things in family seem to be fine, and, and things, you know, content is how you describe yourself. But often in those times, we can forget all about God, and we can forget to go back to God and praise Him and thank Him when things are going well. Again, recognizing that everything that comes to us comes from God's good providential hand. We are easy to forget that, aren't we? And so James reminds us. And so for those of us this morning who are cheerful, are you feeling cheerful? Are you feeling content? What must you do? You must turn to God in praise, giving thanks to him. And then there's the third thing. Now here's one you're going to have to really pay attention to. Pray if you are sick. 
And we need to really think about this. In verse 14, it says, is anyone among you sick? And actually, the response that James gives at this point is, I think, possibly one of the most difficult parts of James, maybe even one of the most difficult parts of the Bible to really understand what's going on. Listen again to the next few verses, and I want you to think, what sort of questions do I have as I listen to these next few verses? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I wonder what sort of questions you have as you hear these verses. We're not going to do like a Q&A where you give me all your questions and then I, I can answer them. That would be an awful way to preach, wouldn't it? Uh, but think about some of the questions that you might have. What are some of those questions? Well, here are some of the ones that maybe might come up. How sick should you be before you call the elders? Are there particular sicknesses that apply, or is this all sicknesses in general? Everything from a sniffle to something that's really, really serious. Why call the elders? It's not that the elders have a special gift in it in healing. It's, it's God who heals. So why not just say to your Christian friend, why not get them to pray if you're sick? Why not with oil? Is prayer not enough? And then in verse 15, there's this guarantee, it seems. Notice it says, it will happen. He will be saved. So what happens if you call the elders and the individual is not healed? I'm sure many of us in the room know a situation where that's been the case. Perhaps, like me, you were uh, one of the elders who was involved. So what's really going on here? Is it that the elders didn't have enough faith? If you weren't healed, should you leave the church and go to another church and try that batch of elders? And if if you're not healed after that, do you move on to the next church and the next church? Lots of questions, isn't there? And then there's a surprise in verse 15, because it says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, save isn't necessarily the language that you might expect to see there. We might expect to see heal the one who's sick. That's kind of the, the language that we would use normally, not save. Save is, is normally a word that's used in the Bible to talk about salvation. And then the flip of this is there in verse 16, because there it says, confess your sins to one another, and we might expect it to say, so that you'll be saved, but it says, so that you will be healed. And then as you jump down, you'll see that there's an appeal to Elijah. That follows in verse 17, doesn't it? And the example that's given refers back to whenever Elijah prayed that it would stop raining. Now, if you know the story of Elijah, you will know that there is another example, or maybe multiple examples, um, of, of times whenever he prays and prayer is answered. But one is with regards to the raising of, uh, to life of the widow's son. Now, if we're thinking about sickness being the context here, is anyone among you sick? Why does James not appeal to this answered prayer from Elijah? Would that not be a better link? But he doesn't. And so as we we look at this passage, there's at least some, there's some questions that we have to wrestle with, isn't there? There's some grappling that has to take place. We at least want to think, okay, this is, this is worth thinking about really, really carefully. 
I found uh, David Gibson and Sam Albury um, really, really helpful whenever we're thinking about these ver- verses. And, and they, they do di- uh, diverge a little from um, how many people have understood these verses. And the reason that they do so is because of all of those questions, or at least some of those ones that I, I raised there. In fact, the longer I've spent in this text over the last few weeks and months, because I knew this one was coming, and I knew that this was probably the most difficult part, I knew that I might well be away, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, the longer I've spent it, the more I've been convinced by, by what, they, what they suggested. So let's just take a step back, think, when it comes to any Bible passage, how do we understand it? We have to think about context, don't we? Context is really key. If you've been here for our series in James, you will know that we've been trying to see that James is not just, it's not just a book of random thoughts that James said, oh, I've got some thoughts in the tongue, I'll write them down. I've got some thoughts in desire, I'll write that down. I've got some thoughts on, no, it's not, it's not like that, but it's a, it's a book that's all weaved together. The themes are, are all tightly connected. James knows what he's doing as he writes this letter, and he has a logical flow throughout the book. And one of the big themes of this book has been that of double-mindedness. We've come back to that again and again and again, double-mindedness. The idea of committing spiritual adultery. We say we love God, but then we find ourselves running off to spend time with all these other gods with a small g. And it's in this context that this teaching comes. And so could it be that the sickness that he's talking about here is not just sickness in general, but sickness that has a very particular link to the sin of double-mindedness. Looks like that's what this particular sickness might actually be, a sickness that is linked to double-mindedness. That's why we would call the elders, that's why we get the church uh, leaders to come round to the house or the hospital bed. Seems that a particular sickness is in view. Now that might come as a, a little bit of a shock to you um, there's lots of places in the Bible where it's really clear that we need to be careful about linking a particular sin to physical sickness, okay? Lots of places in the Bible that tell us to be really, really careful uh, before we do that. Um, it's definitely not the, the normative pattern that we see, and yet there are times in the Bible when sickness has a very direct link to sin. So if we take 1 Corinthians 11, for example, Paul's writing to a church which is made up of believers who are very much living double, uh, in a double-minded way, the very thing that James is addressing in this book and writing about. And there are great displays of selfishness, of self-interest, of ungodly living, when the opposite should be true. There should be unity, there should be togetherness. But rather, there is fractions and divisions. There is biting each other among the church. There is a lack of discernment and consideration as to whether they're really in close fellowship with God. And listen to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth after listing their sin. He said, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Did you hear that? That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You see, God loves his church so much that he is willing to strike down those who are bringing about damage to it. 
You see, damaging the body of Christ through claiming to be one of God's people and yet living in a way that is contrary to how we're called to live is no flippant matter. And God in his wisdom sometimes, that's really key, sometimes chooses to use sickness as a way to humble us and to bring us to repentance. Now, I want you to be really, really careful I want you to be careful as you hear what I've said, okay? Because the Old Testament and New Testament teachings are really clear. They show that we need to urge great caution before we draw a direct line between the two. Think of Job, or think of the disciples in John's gospel asking Jesus about the blind man. They say, oh, who sinned? Was it his, uh, him or his parents? Which parents sinned? And Jesus' response was neither this man nor his parents Okay, neither this man nor his parents. So we live in a world um, where the result of the fall very much affects all of us, okay? Affects all of us, and sickness is just part of that. So please don't miss here what we're saying this morning. Whenever we get sick, it is not necessarily a direct link to a particular sin that we have done. In fact, it seems that the normative um, expectation throughout the Bible is that that would not be the case. But there can be a connection when God is using it as a form of discipline, as we have already seen. So if this is the reason for the sickness in these verses, it seems that, at least to me, that it makes much more sense. Now, there are some important things that I want you to see. Who is it that calls the elders? Have a look. It's the individual themselves, okay? So notice that it's, it's not someone outside who makes the connection and says, ah, they're sick, I know, it was this sin. I spotted them up to it on Wednesday. So whenever you go home, let's not play that game around the, the table, okay? We need to be really careful. It's the individual themselves. They recognize their sinfulness. They recognize their sinfulness. They recognize that they've been living in a double-minded way, Perhaps it's been really clear to the elders of the church. Maybe they've even had conversations and they've refused to do anything about it. And yet, now they've come to recognize their sinfulness and they want to confess it. We confess it to God, yes, but also to confess it to the leadership within the church so the elders would welcome them gladly and, and restore them into the fellowship of the church. And this anointing with oil seems that it could well be a symbolic act showing that the individual has now been set apart for God, restored into the fellowship of the church. And if this sickness was as part of God's discipline as a result of a particular sin, and if the individual has recognized it and brought it before God, and the elders of the church have now restored their fellowship, well, then we would expect that God would heal them of their sickness and that their sins would be forgiven. Now, if this is how we're to understand these verses, well, then that would make a, a really clear link with why he appeals to this particular prayer that Elijah uh, prays. Why was it that Elijah prayed for no more rain? Was it, was it that his garden was just really wet and he was struggling to cut the lawn? No, that wasn't the reason. The reason that he, um, he prays this is actually a judgment on the people. It was a judgment on the people. It was to humble the double-minded people so that they might recognize their sinfulness before God and that they might come back to God in repentance and faith. That was the reason for the prayer that Elijah prayed. 
This is what Elijah was doing when he comes before God in prayer. He is really being a godly leader who wants the people to repent. And James is seeking the health of the church. And it's not just the elders who should care about the health of the church. Look at verse 16. It says they're to confess their sins to each other and pray for each other. And so James is, is really keen that within the church there's this, there's this culture of confessing our sin and praying for each other. Uh, fostering a spirit of humbleness, isn't there? Humbleness before God and before each other. Uh, a spirit of unity. A spirit of being quick to forgive. And so that's one of the reasons why gathering together as a group of believers is so important as a church family. That's why when I said Wednesday night is the prayer meeting, I really wasn't joking because that's really key. It's really key that at some point you're gathering with others within the congregation and taking time to confess our sin and to pray. So although I want us to be really, really cautious as we look at this direct line between sickness and sin this morning, I think it is right for each of us who are facing suffering to at least ask the question. And the question is, am I living in a double-minded way? Am I saying that I love God, but I'm very deliberately choosing to, to run off with other gods as well? Is there an area of my life that I am just refusing to submit to the lordship of Christ? Am I content and quite happily committing spiritual adultery? And if the answer is yes, well then we must confess it. We must confess it, and in some cases we need to come to the elders of the church and seek forgiveness and restoration uh, with those who have been hurt as a result. So, we're to pray if we're sick, absolutely. And I encourage you, if you are sick this morning, to pray if you're sick and to encourage others to pray with you and for you. And you may well want to tell your elders and they may well come and they might pray for you as well. And that is just part of loving each other in a church body, absolutely. But to me, it seems that getting the elders to come and pray and anoint oil in this particular instance seems to be talking about something a little bit different, a very particular type of sickness and a sickness that is uh, directly as a result of sin. Now, the fourth thing that I want us to see in this passage about prayer is that we should pray because it is powerful. We should pray because it is powerful. Isn't that what we see at the end of verse 16? The prayer of a righteous person has great power, great power as it is working. Now, who's the, the righteous person? Well, all of us who are in Christ are counted as righteous, aren't we? And we come before God, our Father, in prayer. You see, in how God rules the world, He invites us. In fact, He commands us to come and to, to bring things before Him in prayer. And He uses our prayers as one of the ways that He brings about His purposes. Now, we're told that Elijah was just a man. He was just a man. He was just like me. He was just like you. He was just an ordinary man in one sense. But he prayed, and what happened? It did not rain for years. We see God's answer to his prayer. And this is what James says. James says prayer really does affect things. Prayer really does work. And so I wonder, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe it? Do you believe that as you come to God and pray, 
that God actually responds to your prayers. And if you believe it, and if you believe it, and James wants us to see that this morning, does our life reflect it? James is really clear. He wants us to, to think about faith and works together. And if prayer is a response to our, our faith, I wonder, do we, do we really show much working at prayer? Is it a priority? Or could we echo what Don Carson said, and much prayer does not happen because we do not plan to pray. Because although we might say that we believe it, actually works, do we really believe it? How does James finish? As we get to the end of uh, the book of James, he doesn't finish with a benediction. Uh, he doesn't finish with some greetings, but he, tip, uh, he finishes in what we might say is a typically James fashion. He finishes with a call to action. You see that, don't we? My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James wants us to pursue the wanderer. That's how he finishes. He says, pursue the wanderer. Because there is a really great danger in wandering. If, uh, sometimes we think wandering's fun, don't we? Just wandering off a little, just want to see what's there. Over there, I'm just going over to see. <laughs> wandering is really, really dangerous and can be deadly. And so James reminds the believer that it is their responsibility to watch out for the wanderers and to seek to bring them back, to pursue them. And we want to be gracious in how we do that, absolutely. But we need to do this for each other. We're a, a big family here in, in Rich Hill. There's a wonderful blessing in, in all being together as one great big family. I love that. And yet, one of the challenges with a big family is that it is easy to get lost. Now, I'm one of seven children, so there was nine in, in my uh, household growing up. And um, yeah, multiple occasions, we sat down for lunch after church around the table, and we would realize that someone wasn't there. <laughs> and the reason someone wasn't there was we assumed that they were in the other car. <laughs> And then it was only at this point we did it. Oh, there's no one in that seat. Ah, we need to scoot back and, and pick them up from church. Now, in a church this size, sometimes, sometimes we can think, well, somebody else will follow them. I spotted that person wandering. Uh, they're, they're deviating off course. They're, they're not following how God calls us to live. I'm sure someone else will pick it up. I haven't been out of church for a few weeks. Well, I'm sure somebody else will have spotted that, and they'll follow up. Well, James says, no, it's our responsibility. All of our responsibility is to care for each other. This is not something that's just for the elders to follow up. No, no, no. It's a whole body. We're to do it together. We're to care for each other. We're to seek the wandering sheep and to bring them back. And James says, you could have saved someone from death. Does that not motivate you to do it? Does that not motivate you? Now, this is not an easy thing to do, okay? You might go to someone, you might try to urge them to come back. <laughs> And they might not want to hear, because they may have very deliberately set their course to wander, and they do not want to return. Your friendship could be ruined. Things could be really awkward. And yet, is that a reason not to pursue if this might save their life? Maybe you're here, and to be honest, this is you. You are the wanderer. And as you sit here this morning and as you hear this, to be honest, maybe it's even a surprise that you're hearing because normally for the sermon part, you've already checked out, but maybe you thought it was getting near the end and so you thought you'd, you'd, you'd click back in just to see if it's, the, if it's at the benediction yet or he's, he's about to say finally. 
maybe you're the wanderer. Maybe you've started to wander. And maybe this is a message that you need to hear to call you back. Wandering can be deadly. Wandering can be deadly. And if someone has been going after you, maybe a friend in church has been saying to you, look, I see you're wandering. Don't, don't keep going. Come back. We want you back in. Be thankful for that friend who has been bold enough to do that and to approach you because they may well save your life. They may well save your life. And who knows, maybe in a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few years, you might need that very person to come alongside you and say, I think you're wandering. You need to come back into line. And they may also save yours. And so with this, we finish James. We finish James at a book that calls us to wholehearted worship of God to faith in Jesus as our Savior, but also as our Lord, which means a striving with God's help, with God's help to live lives that are more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus as we seek to live out the Christian life. Let's pray. Lord God, as we reach the end of the letter of James, we see the dividedness of our own hearts. And so we confess that to you, seeking your forgiveness. And so we echo the psalmist words, which we heard at the call to worship. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from Sheol, from the depths of Sheol. Amen.